<laughs> Even to the point of threatening you to whack your back. <laughs> it's actually not, not bad. It's actually very nice. I've had them, you know. <coughs> it's more like a bamboo thing, you know. So they make a lot of noise. But you just kind of... You know, it's kind of pleasant even. You know, it's like what they do when you want to relax the, you know, the, 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 what do you call it? the muscles here, you know, the, what are they called, the pressure points, you know. So it's more like a pressure point a little bit. Of course, you can hear it, bang, you know. It's, nice. it's difficult to keep falling asleep with that, you know. And the fear of being, you know, found again. <laughs> it's like, you know. That's why the Zen people tend to be really like this, you know. You notice them in a group, you know. <laughs> They've been trained to sit upright, you know. <laughs> Isn't it true? <laughs> when it's in Thailand sometimes, people are, you know, soft and, you know, sort of the way it is. <laughs> it's all right. I'm <laughs> just kind of. So <clears throat> I'm brought to you something here, which is called the protection, the enlightenment factors protection. Don't you want all this for your life before you go away on Sunday? Because sometimes we don't have a, a, a full kind of a spectrum of the Buddhist teaching. And I could be wrong, I don't know, but we tend to think of, in terms of a very small sort of angle, you know, it's more like my meditation. If my meditation doesn't work, my whole Buddhist path is finished, you know. You know, if I if I if I my Anapanasati has failed this morning, my whole day is ruined. You know, we have unfortunately very this kind of unhappy outlook on it. You know, it's like this unhappy, reduced kind of interpretation of the path. You know. Personally, I'm, I feel a lot of joy in Buddhism when I know that I can always start again. That's a great joy, isn't it? Ajahn Shah used to say, you know the practice, you know, you can recognize the wisdom when you hear it. Because your mind really feels a lot of joy from it. You know, it's kind of interesting. I'm not saying you for me, but for Ajahn Shah, <laughs> when he said something like, you know it already, but nobody has confirmed that what you what you know is true. <laughs> it's like seventy percent, you know, seventy five, sometimes up to eighty percent. We don't get it right, you know. We fail. Use even the word fail, I think. And twenty five percent, twenty percent, the practice is, you know, get us in the right place. And that's a very good uh, message because, in a way, what we forget that all the things that we considered a failure, wrong, um, you know, that we haven't got it right, blah, 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 is these experiences are actually incredibly valuable if we have the strengths to see it, you know. What I mean by strength, you can bear with feeling foolish for a little while, you know, foolish because, you know, maybe you want to look like a Buddhist, but then you keep sort of, you know, agitating your mind, which turns into an ogre, you know, and into a nasty, nasty, angry, 
demons, you know, <laughs> little demons. There are little demons as well as big demons. But it can be a little kind of sweet demon, but still it's not the peaceful little Buddha mind, is a kind of peaceful mind. So it's important to know that the past is not made of cont continuous sense of being successful, you know, in practice. Our errors and mistakes are probably our best friends. You understand? I learned everything, you know, from the thing which I was sent a message. You, you could have done better. You didn't do well. You got it wrong, blah, blah, blah. In fact, in retrospect, these are exactly the experience that motivated me to keep going. Do you understand? If you start looking at it from the perspective of Dhamma, from a perspective that, uh, you know, that it is, if you got, can really see its condition, what you experience is always condition, what you experience is impermanent, it's changing, but we're still not trained in this anicca. Being trained, training the mind to see anicca is incredibly profound teaching. You might not be aware, but to be able to move away from something that clings to you like crazy, you know, to move away from a memory, to move away from a, a you know, a, a remorse, guilt, fear, and all that is really hard. But when you have seen, seen, seen these things as anicca for a long time, your consciousness doesn't have any trouble knowing what to, how to respond to that experience. But at first, it's like really hard to unstick oneself from uh, the past, for example. I mean, just a little past or big past, or you know, and unglue your chitta from this hope that you can, you know, be God and create the future as you wish. You know that the future will be the way you think. So one of the very good skillful means, which is not in the factors of enlightenment, but Achen Samedo really taught us, because he was probably working with this himself, you know, taught us how to make peace with not knowing. And again, not knowing, big, big time, you know, what's that, not knowing? Yes? But your mind, you start training your mind. What I think is going, oh God, I'm going home and just, I might... Your husband, my partner, God, oh, it's so nice at Amarawati, I don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> you know, in this that <laughs> You don't know. I don't know. You can just say to your mind gently, I don't know. Oh, got to go to work again. It's going to be horrible. I know I'm going to kind of blow it. The first time I open the door, I'm going to blow at that woman. <laughs> really got got me to come to this retreat in the first place. <laughs> and then instead of thanking her, like you say, I'm grateful, you know, it drove me so nuts. I just I had to practice Dhamma for 10 days. You know, and then, <laughs> do you understand? So to turn away and to remember, you know, to actually use the knowledge of Anicca as a skillful means when your mind is not in that knowledge of Anicca and keeps on dragging all the things that got wrong in your practice. So these are all, do you understand what I'm talking about? You all know? Because you're looking at me kind of perplexed. No? No. A bit perplexed, huh? Well, it's not easy to do. 
And people always tell me, well, you know, my past is really important. That's how I, you know, I need to go back to it. And yeah, yeah, I mean, all psychotherapists will. <laughs> you know, the, on a psychological level, it's good to revisit the past, you know, maybe. But we are on a transcendent level here. I mean, we're going beyond our little personal me and self. After that, you can just go back to your old self. It's fine. I don't have any problem. But the training here is a training. You're not training here to just kind of swim around your psychological soup, you know? <laughs> and it's fine. Psychological soup, I have no problem. We need to really know what it is before we go beyond it. You can't just go, you know, sort of uh, not use that level of experience until you understand it, make peace with it, and let it go a bit, you know? Because in a way, it's our life. We are on the psychological all the time at some level, you know, in daily life. Get likes, dislike, I love, you know, I hate myself, love her, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's going on. All the feelings and the mood and all that, that's the psychological level with all the stories that accompany it and, you know, the improvement stories, the failure stories, the, all that sort of thing. The me story, the mommy story, the daddy story, the doggy story. <laughs> Do you know all that sort of stories? There's just a world of our stories. It can be anything. You know, it can be a beautiful sky, pigeons. I saw a pigeon yesterday, and I thought he would be leaving because I was coming, you know. Just a little aside, because it was very sweet. It was like really big and kind of stood on the top of the tree, like, you know, normally you see pigeon and she and he together, and they all do a lot of love affair between them. You know, you notice <laughs> huge amount of going on. I mean, all around Amarawati, they're all kind of falling in love. You know, you, you rarely see a pigeon without a she and a he, both of them. You know, they continuously kind of, I don't know what they do, but they're really heavy, heavy duty kind of... <laughs> Love affairs, you know. <laughs> Either they're on top of each other or they're kind of kissing each other. Anyway, it's quite sweet. It's just like a human realm, really. Except they seem to be more focused. <laughs> Less guilty than most of us, you know. <laughs> but anyway, what I mean is that... You know, you can have lots of story and enjoy the story. The story I enjoy the story of my mind, and you enjoy the story. I enjoy the story of some people who told me their story. It's a very enjoyable story. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you practice the Buddhist path, the Buddha hasn't asked us to kind of proliferate longer. He said, "Watch proliferations," you know, which is a renunciation, isn't it? Don't we like to proliferate on things? Look, I've just been proliferating about pigeons just now. <laughs> it's kind of fun, isn't it? I mean, for me, I don't know for you, but you seem to be laughing, so obviously it's also fun for you. <laughs> but what I mean is that it's just like we, we renounce, that's all. We let go of the me story. It's me story, and if it is really nice, we love the me story. Not, not the mystery, but the me story. And we actually, we don't wake up usually. If you enjoy it, that's one of the very well-known, um, you know, uh, Monk, teacher, monk from Burma, said one day, I mean, long, long time ago, when I was doing a retreat with Mahasi Sayadaw, he said something that didn't go and 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 unnoticed. I can tell you, and he just said something like, "If you like something, you cannot be mindful of it, because mindfulness takes a, a view which is completely neutral. Do you understand? You see, you have to see something to be mindful. You have to see it." But if you like it, 
It's usually you're embroiled with it. I mean, that's what he said. I didn't have to believe him. You can see the liking as well. Do you understand? But it's still mindfulness that we see the liking. That's mindfulness that we see the object of your liking. Right? So if you love something too much, you cannot be mindful because you are really entangled emotionally with that thing. And then you can also see, at some point, you can be mindful of the entanglements. You can be mindful of the embroiled, you know, being embroiled with it. And then little by little, you can free your mind from it, you know. And if you need to, you know, it's like life doesn't disappear because we detach from it. In fact, for me, I told you already that I had a really quite good insight into love. And in fact, I'm going to write a little booklet about the four faces of love, which are really the Brahma Vihara, but I thought, you know, rather than to call them compassion, and so the four faces, and it's not something new, but... What I mean is that I notice, I've told you this before, that the love, the real love for people, which is an unselfish love, you understand? Not a kind of a neurotic type obsessive love, you know, which can we get into quite easily, you know. The love that makes you feel jealous and envious and miserable and, you know, obsessed and, you know, it kind of brings a lot of movement in the mind. <laughs> it's not particularly peaceful. In fact, we like it because it's exciting, you know. Up and down and up and down. So your mind is just constantly can be agitated, you know, in a relationship where there is uh, this attachment a little bit, you know. And so for me, uh, if I'm really on the Buddhist path, I'm not so interested. My mind does, is not interested in that. It could be, you know, it's not like there's a choice, but I'm not interested, you know. I'm more interested in freeing the heart, actually. And that's my take on my own life, you know. But I notice that true love, and you don't have to believe me, is actually a love which is um, detached, completely unattached. Because when you're not detached, unattached, when you haven't let go, you know, then what happens is that you pass on to the other person your own attachment, you understand? That attachment is not fun. You get this dysfunctionality, you know, I'm attached to you. You don't, of course, you just say, I love you. You know, that's, I want you. I love you. I want, you know, don't get away. And and then what happened is immediately there's an expectation. You know, if I give that to you, give this to me. Of course, you never say that. So divorce, usually you hear it. <laughs> In the court. <laughs> Told you all this to you, you get all this money, and look, you just treated me like rubbish, you know, badly. So you realize that real love, it's a love, the Buddha says it many times, he doesn't talk just about love, he talks about dana, don't expect anything in return. The mind is free, the mind is free, and you leave the other person to be free. Do you understand? But we do have a certain addiction to feeling entangled and attached to people, you know. So I'm talking about a level which is not easy to understand. Because if you are free, then you allow other people to feel free. But if you are, you know, have an agenda, then other people will give you the agenda for one thing as well, which may not concord with each other. And that's where fights start, isn't it? 
what you expect from life is not what I expect from life or from me or you know. So this is very important. And uh, I was, you know, reflecting on these things and I realized that we have these um, factors of enlightenment, you know, seven factors of enlightenment. Have you heard of them? Who hasn't heard about the seven factors of enlightenment? Just a few. Read all the books. Did you? So, so, I'm not sure. Eh? <laughs> so it's a bit vague, eh? Right. Okay, this is why I brought them. Okay, so for those who don't know, or those who are a little bit vague about it. So the enlightenment fact factors are reckoned as mindfulness. You've been developing this for nearly 10 days now. Then you have Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of Dhamma. That's what you've been doing, isn't it? Then you have effort. Took a lot of effort to, to come back to the shrine room late at night and to practice meditation all day. Joy and tranquility. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> Joy and tranquility. Did you experience any of that? Did anybody experience any joy and tranquility? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine out of fifty, uh, nine, <laughs> nine and a half, <laughs> ten, ten and a quarter. <laughs> so maybe this is what we need to really work on, you know, until Sunday <laughs> the joy and tranquility. And then the, uh, there's other enlightenment, enlightenment factors, you know, it's a collectedness, which is also concentration, you know, collectedness, I mean, samadhi also, okay, to be collected. And then equanimity, enlightenment factors. So this is it. Mindfulness, investigation of Dharma, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and the last one, equanimity. Hmm? So the big scope for you to tr work through the day in your daily life on these particular pointers, they are like pointers, aren't they? If you forget about your nostrils, you know, anapanasati and so on, you say, am I equanimous about this? Or am I having a tantrum inside because I'm not finding my breath? You remind yourself, you know, what is collected is a mind focus on Dhamma, or are you completely lost into feeling that Buddhism is not for you because you can't find your breath? Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, you know. But your samadhi is not quite established. Maybe you haven't done it right. So these um, different factors of, of the sort of enlightenment, you know, um, you can reflect on them. Joy. Many of the teachings are about nurturing states of mind that brings joy. Like, for example, the Brahma Vihara, loving kindness, compassion. Yes? Joy, Mudita. 
and then equanimity. These are the Brahma Vihara. Brahma means divine, God, you know. So divine abiding, sometimes referred to as divine abiding. And we'll do meditation on metta, you know. That brings a lot of joy. Now, for an angry type, it brings a lot of rage, usually. So it's not an instant result. For those who still have a lot of anger and believe their thought, then response to metta is anger. And that I can tell you from my direct experience. As long as I was attached to my thinking, the idea of changing my angry thought to a meta thought was just an absolute no. No way I'm going to change my thought. I like my critical, negative, miserable thought, and I'm not going to change that for me. You'll be well and happy. May life be sweet and kind. May all you be kind. Can't stand it. The men, particularly, you know, just can't stand it. Women are more motherly. We have. We have hormones, you know, that just have to be nurturing, so we're born with that. We have the nurturing hormones. So we can't help being, you know, compassionate, even when we don't want to be, because it's part of our job to to raise little babies and so on. We can't just raise them with just anger, frustration, and <laughs> aversion, hatred, and and... And kind of disconnection, you know. We have actually a hormone that's about connection. If you think you have a problem as women, and you men particularly, if you think you have a problem with women, I'm going to tell you something, really. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to reveal something. You might know it. You can see it straight away in a book, very famous book called A Little History of Everything by Ken Wilber. Who doesn't know Ken Wilber? Well, it's a very famous American psychologist and uh, a bit of a philosopher as well. Ken Wilber, who knows him? Uh, it's have to be American. Who knows him, you know? Yeah. So he's an interesting guy. And uh, he wrote, in the introduction of A Little History of Everything, he talks about something which I knew already about women, but um, he talks about the hormone that men have. And I won't tell you that because it's quite rude about that char that particular kind of Paragraph is rude about men, I found, you know. But it's real, it's true. It's true, but it's, it's, ex it's expressed in a rudish way, you know. So I can't tell you this, you know, you have to be a small circle. But for women, so they, they have this, we have this hormone that actually wants to connect all the time. You know, there's been millions of ballet, ballet on stage about, you know, the, 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 the man has a big newspaper, you know, sitting on stage. And the ballerina is kind of fluttering around. <laughs> Did you notice me? I'm here. Now remind you something? I'm here. And the guy is just behind his newspaper, you know. The famous ballet is like that. And so, you know, we are misunderstood, you see. Right? And the men are also misunderstood, too. So there's a two misunderstanding we have to solve in life before moving on, right? So one of them is this connect. This uh, we have this hormone of women who wants to connect all the time. If you think we have women have a problem, we just like that. We just want to connect. We chat, chat, chat a lot because we want to connect. We feel really happy to connect as well. We don't have a problem. We just enjoy talking, don't we? That's all. In concentration camp, apparently, as women, you always find a way to connect. They have fun. They don't get depressed, but the men get depressed, you know. <laughs> 
But the women always had things to do, you know, and to enjoy themselves. It's quite well known. It's been sort of uh, investigated and researched into. But the women, the men just, you know, just get disconnected. They just don't know what to do from their women. When it's disconnected from their women, they don't know what to do. Or their men, I mean, depending on which part of, you know, the, the, the sex you represent, you know. But what I'm saying is that this connection, you know, is um, something we have. And it's not, I say that to the women, you know, and the men, you can hear it as well. But, you know, we feel sometimes bad and misunderstood because people say, oh, she's always talking and she's always like this. And, they, you know, and they're always talking. And she wants to chat all the time. I'm saying, so fed up, you know, to tell me stories all the time. And she wants to tell, right? The husband and wife, you know, she's talking all the time. And you just want to be quiet. The men want to be quiet, you know, just kind of go to their room quiet, do their meditation. And the women say, oh, did you know what happened, you know, today? Get away from me. Can't stand it, you know. But of course, you don't say that. But the women feel that's a problem. That's The men often don't know that. Women have a kind of an intense receptor. They can know exactly what you're feeling before you even open your mouth. So watch out, you know. That's a problem. We know too much, you see. <laughs> Don't you agree with me? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, I've lost the thread now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's important, isn't it? That you feel at ease being a woman. You don't have to be a man to suddenly fit in society, which is a society is very prone to kind of make women look like, you know, to be recognized, you have to behave a bit like a young man, you know. None of that. Well, how do you feel about that, you know? Oh, God, you know, it's so vague. Oh, I feel like this. We've got nuns, you know, I feel like this. And then you go to young nuns, you know, the young, you know, so get really impatient with people that talk about their feeling all the time. It's kind of boring after a while, you see. But for people who love their feeling, it's not boring. It's just, like, interesting. So you can see why we need the factors of enlightenment, don't we? Because otherwise we'll be really confused. Even after all I said to you, we'll still be quite confused about that. <clears throat> so remember them. Mindfulness, investigation of Dharma, joy, equanimity, and samadhi is actually uh, concentration, but uh, tranquility is called pasadi in, in Pali. That means really calm. When the mind gets calm, you know, that's kind of pasadi. You can see it in that way. And calm. So calm is really important in our meditation, you know. And you can really make the mind calm. Maybe sometimes it's a bit suppressing everything. But it's not, uh, you know, it's not a, a terrible thing to experience a mind that's calmed down just through the meditation objects that you have. Yeah, you can calm it down. It calms down once you have a sustained uh, a kind of um, mindfulness of a meditation object. But not everybody can do that. We're too restless. Sometimes we jump from one thing to another. 
But if you stay sustained with a meditation object, whether it's a sound of silence or the, the, the breath or just the simplicity of sitting, then the mind really calms down. And if you expect the mind to calm down, then that desire to want thing different, expectation, you know, than what you see now, you know, if you have too much of the, an agenda, oh, agents and the rest of it comes down. And there's something in you that say, I must calm down, or I need to calm down. I'm going to see if it comes down. That activity in the back of your mind stops the calm to come. Do you understand? So at some level, to really have a mind that calms down, you have to talk to it in such a way that it's, you say to it, whatever happened is okay. It's okay. Everything is okay. And then the agenda of clinging is not there anymore. You understand? It's okay. You know, you have to play with the energy of the mind. When I said to my chatty mind for three days, it wouldn't stop. And I said, you know, you can think for 3,000 years. I don't mind. It stopped. Within five minutes, there was no thoughts. It's something in me that was pushing. I want to be calm. I want to be tranquil. I want to be with no thoughts. But you don't see consciously. It's not conscious. And as soon as you make it conscious, yes, you're thinking, you can think for 3,000 years. Never mind. So you make it conscious and the mind comes down straight away. So these um, these seven factors of enlightenment come from a sutta, yes, which is um, related to disease, disease, illnesses. There were some great beings who were sick, and the Buddha chanted this sutta, and then they got cured. Now it's not magic, you know. I mean, mind of the Buddha will have a bit of healing power, I'm sure, right? But it's about that. It's about that. So it says, shall I read it to you? <clears throat> the enlightenment factors are reckoned. Mindfulness, then investigation of Dhamma. Then you have effort, joy, and tranquility. Joy is pity. It's a kind of joy when your mind is concentrated a little bit, you have this kind of ecstatic joy sometimes, you know? Right? It's physical, almost. Huh? Then it comes down, becomes tranquility. And then you have concentration or collectedness. Sometimes we can just focus. Equanimity. And these are the enlightenment factors. These seven, which the all-seeing Muni, that's the Buddha, has taught perfectly, developed, and frequently practiced, bring about the super-knowledge, super-knowledges, Nibbana and enlightenment. So bring about super knowledges, comma, Nibbana, comma, enlightenment. By the speaking of this truth, ever in safety may you be. At one, at one time, the Lord Buddha saw that Pramogalana and Prakasapa suffering from fever. He pointed out the seven enlightenment factors, and they, overjoyed, were at that moment free of disease. Disease, not disease, not a lack of ease, just disease, illness. 
By the speaking of this truth, ever in safety may you be. Once, when the king of Dhamma was afflicted by fever, he asked Prachunda Tera on the sorry, he asked Prachunda Tera on this matter that he that she should speak affectionately, affectionately. Can, are you following me, my English, my French? No, okay. Um, <laughs> and then, having rejoiced, he arose from that diseased condition. Diseased condition. By the speaking of this truth, ever in safety may you be. Those diseases were got rid of by those three great sages. Right? Prachunda, Pramogalana, and Prakasapa. By the speaking, so, uh, as the past destroys the defilement, the past destroys the defilement, attainment according with nature of Dharma, by the speaking of this truth, ever in safety may you be. So that's called the Bojanga. Bojanga Sutta. Okay? The enlightenment factors protection. So the chant itself is considered like a protection. Of course, it was chanted by the Buddha. So you can imagine the mind of a Buddha. I can't imagine it, in fact, can we? But it must have been very powerful. Probably he just said, be well, and you could be well instantly. You know, Get up, you get up, you know. <laughs> like the great Christians said, we have many stories of some very uh, powerful high being in the even in Christian tradition, you know, who said to I remember the way of the pilgrim. I don't know if you've read this book, The Way of the Pilgrim, who said to um you know at the end of his pilgrimage, he said to a, a man who was kind of uh, paralyzed, the man was paralyzed and asked him he asked this pilgrim to help him and to make him better. So he said, Well I, I can I can help you, but once I I help you you have to basically devote your life to the to Jesus, you know, because Jesus was uh, the, his teacher, you could say, or God. And so he just pro- performed a miracle, and the young man started walking. Right. So it might not work with us if we want our grandmother to be well and start doing the bujango, and she starts getting, you know, really back to. Good health. We might no. Don't be disappointed. Yes, that that would be a defilement, and that has to be destroyed by the paths. And the path is about seeing anicca dukkha right? Developing mindfulness, collectedness. I like this word, collectedness, and uh, all the other uh, qualities of the mind that we have to cultivate as we go along. Any questions? I knew somebody would ask me. <laughs> I I could tell you. I, what does it say in Pali? Let's see. <laughs> I, I as soon as I said super, I said chanted sort of read super knowledge. I, I, my mind says somebody is going to ask you, <laughs> what is that? What is that? Abhinya, yeah, Abhinya. Abhinya is the psychic powers, you know. Like being able to know the future, to read people's mind, to what you know, 
walk on water, that kind of thing. That's the abhinya. It means psychic knowledge. Be careful. Don't get psychic. <laughs> if the ego is not really properly trained and seen, already seen in its nature, you know, it can be quite dangerous because it becomes a super ego. And some people don't know. They can't even handle their ordinary ego. And once the ego gets a super ego with power, it's really hard. They often end up in a psychiatric hospital, you know, because they think they're suddenly the Buddha, the Jesus, or whatever. You know, it's not probably, I, I, I can't talk for myself, but it's not easy to think of your mind as a very, you know, having this kind of power. Some people have super, you know, psychic knowledge, even when they haven't, you know, worked at it very much, you know. And it's really, it really makes their life hell, you know, <laughs> to know the future, you know, to, to think ahead of time, or to to believe that, you know, or even to read people's mind. I couldn't imagine. What a bore, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine? Because the ego is still curious, you know. There's still, like, nosiness. You know, just want to find out what somebody's thinking. Can you imagine? Even though you might not want to, but suddenly you might. You might. <laughs> That would be really awful. Already it's difficult to read your mind, but to be able to read other people's minds. When I was in Thailand in the forest, people said, you know, your teacher is, can read your mind. I must be an old nun, probably, because I must have done this, because I said, well, so what? You know, I missed two to read a boring mind, you know? Big deal. I'm happy if he wants to read my boring mind all day long with me. I've got to bear reading my boring mind all day long. If somebody else wants to read it, that's fine. I don't have any problem. I don't have nothing to hide, you know, because the mind, is, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty mad, you know what I mean? So you can think anything, anything and everything. That's why you need to be careful with your thoughts. That's why you need to have the protection of the Dhamma. Because at least you can guide your mind in the right direction to understand rather than being overwhelmed and frightened by what it conjures up. You know. One day there was a, a woman in Hampstead when Ajahn Sumedho arrived from Thailand, you know, not very long after he arrived. And she was uh, uh, like probably in the 60s, 70s, I don't know, what would have considered very old. She was a grandmother and she has a grandchild. She had a grandchild. And she told, she came to Ajahn Sumedho, obviously. She liked, you know, the teaching and so on. And one day she came in a total panic because when she went to visit her grandchild in the hospital, you know, I mean, it was just born. She had this uh, kind of image that she wanted to poke the grandchild's eyes <laughs> to blind it, you know, like that. And she was so frightened, you know, she was sh shocked. By this, totally shocked. So she went, she mentioned it, she talked to Ajahn Sumedho about it. Basically reassured her, like he said, well, anything can come up in the mind, you know. It's not you, it's not like you, something you're going to do, it, anything can come up. That's why we need the Dhamma, do you understand? We need the Dhamma to understand, for, for example, Anicca Dukkha Anatta, you know, you know, it comes, but it's going to go. Even if you want to kill somebody, it's going to come and it's going to go. Murderer, obviously, haven't seen the Dhamma yet because they act on it. Do you understand? That's a terrible thing. 
you know, people haven't seen that this thought is frightening. Many, I'm sure many people who commit terrible crime are completely, you know, they can't stop. You know, sometimes you can't stop. It's not that they would want necessarily to commit a crime, but they can't stop it. The energy of that thought is too powerful. You know, the fear behind this is too powerful to even stop. That's what my take on many on this kind of thing often, I think, you know, that they are pursued by their fear and maybe may even remorse, you know, but they can't stop, you know, they cannot. The energy is too, too strong, so it pushes them, you know. I notice, you know, for example, if you, you know, not that I break my preset particularly, but... Uh, well, it's not from my own experience personally that I can think, but uh, maybe before I was a nun, you know, before I took my precept. Well, you can see it just with greed. You notice that. It's a simple thing. You eat one biscuit and the next thing you know, the whole, whole packet is gone. <laughs> you didn't stop, did you? <laughs> that can go for anything, you know. People drink wine or drink and they can't stop. They just keep going until the <coughs> bottle is finished. That's the same energy, that energy of, I don't know, it's kind of fear and kind of, you know, addiction. I mean, you call that by addiction. It's like something in the brain that cannot stop until the bottle is empty. So, on those good words, any more questions? Yeah? I thought I might talk a bit tonight with the Brahma Vihara. Do you want to have a conversation with somebody? Oh, the same question. So you were telling somebody the same question. It's quite sweet, isn't it? So, Okyonimit is a very good question, actually. I can talk a bit more in details right now. Okay, Okyonimit. So, I reacted to equanimity for a long time because I didn't want to be equanimous particularly, you know, I wanted to be passionate about things. So equanimity is like a damper, you know, it's just equanimous, you know, boring. <laughs> right? That's how the emotional world interprets it, you know. But in, for example, in the Brahma Vihara, you have equanimity at the end. Pardon me? Yeah. Right. It's all right. I'm I'm totally equanimous about your movement. <laughs> In fact I feel compassionate too even. <laughs> Obviously need to do that. Can you hear me better now? Okay. So equanimity in our you know, passionate Western world is not something that's kind of always seen in a very good light. You seen people, you know, not saying no, so you know all parts of the society, but we're more addicted to passion than equanimity. Especially if you dance south, you know, all these southern French and Italian and Spanish, you know, just give them equanimity, they just die, you know, <laughs> die of emotional starvation. <laughs> so. Um, Equanimity in the well, I I say in the Brahma Vihara in the you know because that probably covers everything. So it means um, 
You have like Meta, it's like the, the, the love of a mother for her child. Mudita, uh, Karuna, often in Thai, it's always Meta Karuna. You don't have one without the other. Yeah. So Karuna is more like empathy for the suffering of others, right? A bit like a Christian love, you know? Then you have um, Mudita, that's joy. It sometimes is called um, sympathetic joy, you know, which means you are you empathize with the joy of others. You can empathize with the suffering of others that we know, but the empathy for the joy of others suddenly you can share the joy of somebody, and you don't want to kill it. You know, something in you share is happy, rejoice in the in the happiness of others. And it's almost when your mind is free from resistance to um, something, you know, free from resistance altogether, you find suddenly it's like two empty um, container. You know, the joy of one person comes here as well. You're not jealous. I mean, joy is like uh, the antidote of envy, envy, jealousy. And then the last one is Upeka. And Upeka... It's love, it's still love, but it's love with equanimity, and that means at some level, for example, let's say you have a partner who is addicted to alcohol or to drugs or something and is destroying himself or herself. So you try everything you can to not, uh, to help these people, you know, to stop taking these drugs or the alcohol. But you can't. They, you know, it's difficult. You can't do it. And at some point, you see the person is still destroying himself or herself, and you realize that each one of us have our own karma. At some point, only the person can change. You cannot change them. You can try to change them, and people can feel very guilty and very hopeless when they can't help other people. Yeah. Well putting their life in danger, putting their friends also in danger, you know. They can't stop. And so equanimity is that you continue to love them even though there's nothing you can do for them. Do you understand? You calm down. You have this equanimity. Right? That's how I see it. That's how it was. It's at some point you stop fretting about it, you know, and you realize, okay, I've done everything I could do, I thought I could do something, but at some point I realize I just have to let this person be what what he or she is, there's nothing much I can do anymore, it's very difficult. Does that sort of clarify, yeah? And and what? Yeah, I mean it's a form of equanimity. Yeah, well, it might not be equanimity. It could be I, I just give up. You know, it's like more, not such a kind of a wholesome state of mind. 
It could be I'm just going to stop doing something because I get so exhausted. It, yeah, I mean, it's a form of letting go, you know. Sometimes we let go out of aversion, so that's not the best way. You know, sometimes we let go because we feel so bad, we can't do anything. Yeah. Well, equanimity doesn't mean we don't do anything. You know, equanimity means you calm the mind down, you actually look at the situation with a calm mind, with no expectation, no desire, no wanting, no da-da-da. And a mother always have desire and wanting, don't they? Very difficult to have a mum not wanting their children to be a certain way. I mean, I've never been a mother myself, but I've had nuns, you know, and I know that they wanted me to be a certain way, and I wanted them to be a certain way too. So it was a kind of uh, double, double expectation, you know. So, do you, is your question resolved or not? When you talk about getting what? I know. Is that for your children? One of your children? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Are you older than him? Younger. Yeah. And he doesn't respond well to your help. Well, in you and in him. In him. And you read all the Buddhist books. Yeah, just send him to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll sort him out. <laughs> I'll get it straight. <laughs> You're not exaggerating a little bit through your own expectation, no? You're not exaggerating a little bit what he does to everybody. Not really. He's a really nasty guy. Is he? Mm. We can do Skype. <laughs> so I'm just joking, I'm just joking. Don't don't tell him that. I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. <laughs> no, but listen, your brother is in Sri Lanka, is also here, isn't it, right now? By golly, you do feel your brother right now, don't you? Well it's about time to let that brother go. This one you can let it go. The other one in Sri Lanka you can't, but the one here you can let it go. Look, it makes you really very unhappy. But you know, at some level, do you know how you can help your brother? By loving him just the way he is. Begin with love and end with love. Do you know what I mean is that it travels, you know? Love. If he is like that, you know, I mean, men can be a bit insensitive sometimes, you know? Not all of them. <laughs> and women can be a real pain. <laughs> hey? Does it get better? 
But I mean, have you seen any good result from your meta? Hopeless sorry, isn't it? Hopeless. <laughs> Hopeless. Well, there's nothing you... Right now, start. There's nothing I can do about my brother. Give up. Give up your brother altogether, you know. He'll be really happy, I think, when you give him up. Because he's getting all your vibes, you know. So just give him up. Just say, my brother is fine, you know. I don't need to think about it. It's fine. Just let him go. Let him go. Right? Look, oh, you're already smiling. <laughs> You feel better already. <laughs> it doesn't take much, does it? To see big letting go in your bedroom. You know, I let go of my brother every day. It's true. And then, now, you are now meditating. Now you can actually meditate on the memory of your brother that you carry in you because it's obviously very, very, very painful. Do you understand? So... I have never been able to sort out anybody in my life except me. Nobody. I've tried. I try people to really like me and they hate me even more. I try people to be loving. Don't worry about it. It's sorted out, you know. <laughs> but what I mean, you cannot change anybody. That It took a long time. You think you can change people? You cannot. All you can do, the only thing that worked for me is letting them go and be. Do you understand? By letting them go, is not rejecting them. Let them be. Let them be the way. You know, he's the owner of his karma, born of his karma, related to his karma, our karma, abide supported by his karma. So if he's really nasty, he'll be abiding in a world of nastiness. And that's not your world, you understand? So it's really important. I mean, this is for everybody, isn't it? Not just for this lady. But for everybody, my experience is that once you let go of people, they feel much happier. Once you stop worrying about them, they feel so much happier. Because you are free, do you understand? So they pick up on your freedom and they really start loving you. When, when they know that you're, you're, you know, you're not dependent on them anymore. You see, if you depend on them, it's a burden for you, a burden for them. It gets worse, I noticed. So with your brother, equanimity means more. Equanimity towards the experience you have. Be at peace with what you carry about him in you. So that peace itself will start opening the door of letting go. And you don't know, maybe you will never change your brother. But, you know, energy travels far. So your own peace will, can change things, you know. And you don't know when. I've helped a lot of people, you know, like couples and families and so on, you know, to come to more harmony. And to, it's quite extraordinary how it works, you know, how it works. It can work. People can change, but not to the point we want. You know, they still will be the same. If they're not practicing, if they're not transforming their mind, if they're not, letting go of their unskillful action and speech, they cannot change so much, you know, they just keep eating, they keep repeating the same old cycle. So, you you know, if they cannot change, you cannot change them. All you can do is love them as they are, because love, that's what I was saying, L this energy of love is not actually a feeling even, do you understand? This energy of love for me is more like water, thawing everything, it's like warm water. 
sowing, you know, sowing the, the iceberg of me. That's just my image that comes to me, you know. So um, this loving energy is something that has no boundaries and no barrier, you know, and it infiltrates everywhere. And it's just an, an image I, I got, you know, and it's not something you can carry around as a memory, particularly if you don't want to, but it, re it requires from your mind to adapt to this energy flowing water, you know, and our mind is really hard and, no, I'm not going to like her. No, it's horrible or it's horrible. Do you know there's something really hard in ourselves? Always, always. Not always, but once you see that what this flowing water love is asking for us, it's really profoundly, uh, I can say, it demands a lot from us. It really demands that we die to a lot of old, you know, old tension and old the tension in the mind with our kind of prejudices and assumption and, you know, all the stuff that we carry in our head, in our thinking world. You know, it, it reminds us that we become like water. And, that's, you know, that's, you can see emptiness, you know, with something that's flowing, you know, without no negativity or no, you know, Your brother will be all right. You can just dedicate your retreat to the benefit of your brother with nothing in return. With absolutely no expectation whatsoever. And you might go to Sri Lanka and say, gosh, I felt really good in July. I don't know what happened. I just suddenly felt more peaceful. You never know. I'm not saying it will, but you never know. But don't expect. You can just let go of all your expectations in life in general because that's a source of our misery. You expect things. But your expectation, you can love them you can, with equanimity. <laughs> you know, you can be at peace with them because we often have expectation even when we don't want them. You know, we just, they're just there. Well, we've spent a bit of time on this, and maybe that was... Did you find it helpful? It is helpful, isn't it? Do you want more questions? Oh, Muki. Yes. Lisa. They are in the street, they are in the street. question it's not um, 
you know, you can't, you can't plan what you can do in a way. Do you know what I mean? You can just notice the feeling. Then the feeling in your heart. You have a doubt. You have a question. You're not. You're a bit confused about it, and so on. Sometimes just clearing those feelings you know, brings a response. You don't know which response. You know, maybe you go to a shelter and give some money for them to be cared properly, rather than money to them, which will go straight to the drug, you know, dealer. You can do that. You know, maybe not directly to people but to places where they are cared, you know, where drug addicts are actually taken care of. I think that's what I would do if I had money. You know, because in a way the Buddha does say is um, avoid, um, you know, the company of unwise people, you know. So it's not like you want to hang out too much with drug addicts to make them feel better because they might just drag you down into to make them really feel better, they love to share joints with you or something more, more kind of, a, you know, dangerous to see. So I think it's much better to, you know, to have to acknowledge this empathy that you are really uh, compassionate towards them. You have a feeling of wish to help them. It's important to acknowledge that, that we have an empathetic, compassionate heart. And then after that, you just um, find a wise way to support whatever groups are supporting them, you know. And then it makes you feel good in a way after that. You feel good. But I don't think helping them in the street is the best way. You know, that's, I would not do that myself. But, you know, I would not engage particularly with people who are drug addicts. It's dangerous, actually. Drug addicts are dangerous, you understand. They lose their mind. They are, you know, they can break their precepts, any precept, any time, you know. So be careful, you know. Don't count on a drug addict to give you a, you know, a stable mind, to share with you a stable mind. It's not stable. An, an addict mind is not a stable mind. It's a possessed mind, you understand. He's possessed by his addiction. Yeah, makes the sense. Yeah, I know many people have this doubt. You know, what do I do in the street? Or do I give money? And you know, when I was, in, I think I was in Palo Alto, came out of a Starbucks where we have lots of Starbucks in America. You know, with friend, I was living there for, I mean, in California for three years, and someone, you know, they were offering us breakfast. I remember it was very nice, and we came out. There were some uh, street people, you know, homeless people. And my friend wanted to give some fun to women, you know. And she said, I don't need your money. I've got my, you know, she just kind of rejected this person straight away. <laughs> I don't need your money. I've got my pensions. You know, it's really funny, this kind of reaction. You never know what you're going to say, you know. <laughs> Another question? Are you are you in this field kind of thing? Indirectly. Uh, I think it's important that if we if we are meeting people, that we actually we don't understand. So, 
I'm, I'm suggesting that it might be a good thing to investigate what type of people these are. Why, why are they drug addicts? Why are they on the street? Very often they're people who have more than 25% of people who are homeless in this country are ex-military, have PTSD, can't adjust to living back in the normal world. So they invariably have deep psychological problems. And there are various ways that people can get into problems to help them to understand without, you know, we're very good in this country giving money to charity, but we're not so good at getting involved in things that are difficult. Mm -hmm. Homeless people do have dangerous problems, and so you have to be very careful how you engage with them. But, uh, yeah. Our empathy and compassion sometimes, it's, we, um, we get more out of it if we Oh, there are many reasons, of course, yeah, many causes for this kind of situation, sure, yeah. I I think many people understand, you know, that, I mean, you read enough the news and enough articles on the topic, you know, to understand that people have gone down into the drug, the drug road of drugs and addictions, you know, or streets, living in the street, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, if you have in England, but there's a lot of uh, uh, what do you call uh, uh, you know exposure of this uh, this world, you know, of people falling little by little down to end up in the street. I and mean, even a pharmacist, there was a documentary of a pharmacist who just lost everything and ended up in the street, you know, in France, for example. And after they did this documentary, they got he got off a job straight away, apparently. You know, but if you could have gone into, you know, feeling totally despairing and ending up, you know, basically injecting, you know, drugs that make him forget about this, make him forget things. I think, I didn't think this lady did not know that. She knows, she knows a little bit of the background, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's true. Yeah, it's a lot more. It's much more deep than the reason, are much more deep. Not so much talking about the reason, but more like how to respond that when you go off to you know, to university or to your job, and every day you see the same people like that, you know. What's more your situation, isn't it, how you do? Okay, thank you. Who is the lady who come from Australia? It's Australian lady. <laughs> <laughs> is that... It's you. Oh, okay. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Because your sister sent uh, a letter. That's right. Are you doing okay? Brilliant. So, no more questions? Yes. Once. Yes. <laughs> 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 hey. Yeah.
transcend before you can. Well, I like soup myself. <laughs> so, not necessarily negative. But it has a bit of a negative connotation, you know. Yeah, spiritual bypassing is well known, you know, in uh, particularly like 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, people were accused, you know, of, of religious people, you know, kind of bypass all the kind of worldly, you know, psychological uh, sort of level of existence, you know. Well, you don't bypass the psychological existence, you know. If you do, you're in trouble, right? You only understand it more profoundly, and when you understand something, you can let it go. Do you understand? You know, when you talk about psychological soup, it's more like the me, the me, and that's what you think. We transcend the me by just bypassing me. But we don't, you cannot transcend me by bypassing me. It doesn't work. You go crazy, usually, you know. Because the whole path, for example, the Buddhist path, which I know, it's a path of understanding the nature, the existence of me, which when you look at it clearly, is actually a very temporary experience made up of many temporary events. Okay? And you really examine, you are really investigating what you think me is. So you're not bypassing it. And when you live in everyday life, you meet me all the time, don't you? This I. So if you bypass it, then you are really in deep trouble. No, we don't bypass me. You know, And we don't bypass the psychological level of existence. No. You learn how to connect with it in the right way, in a way that is actually true way. And by true way, I mean that, I mean true way is one aspect of this true way is uh, using, you have confidence that what the Buddha teach, teaches is maybe a way of looking at me. Something in us get a, a sense that when you are mindful of me, it doesn't have the same aspect than when you're not mindful of me. Then you, when you are mindful of me, you realize that me, that you get entangled all day long with, doesn't need to be entangled with the past. Most of our entanglements is with the past. Every day, in the moment, we get entangled with the past. Past stories, past images, past memory, and so on. Right? It's the past. So we learn to see the past as a memory, rather than reality. For example, just an example. So, you no, know, you don't bypass me. You understand the nature of this I that create the world around again and again and again. And we're quite addicted to the me world, you know. It's kind of fun. We create wonderful worlds and less wonderful worlds and hellish worlds and so on. 
But at some point, um, you know, if you're in Buddhism, um, yeah, it seemed like it can seem like it's bypassed, you know, because we don't take refuge in me anymore. But you take refuge in understanding, you know, understanding the nature of me. You see, you examine, you investigate the personality level, yeah? Make sense? Does that satisfy you as an answer? Or do you want to challenge me a little bit more? It's all right. Yeah, well, it's a very important question, actually, because we have asked this question in the early 90s in this community. You know, people were really upset, even upset about Buddhism, because it feel like with people, the teachers, the people teaching and so on, there was a sense of bypassing me. There was an interpretation of the teaching as bypassing me, or bypassing the spiritual, the psychological soup. Yeah. So even in the community, when this Buddhist, you know, monastic community, there was a, this question coming up. You know. So it's a good question because many people seem to be bypassing me because it's like, you know, I want to say something to you. You know, you watch your mind. You know. Ajahn Sumedho used to love to make a lot of joke about that, you know. So, but each one of us had a way sometimes of saying what's your mind, you know, in different form. It didn't have to be verbal, you know. But they kind of, you come to the place of sometimes you, you have to be careful not to become unempathetic or disconnected. Some people disconnect, you know. That's really dangerous. That's when they go slightly psychotic, you know, or schizo, mostly psychotic. You know, where they can't connect to themselves anymore. And then their mind just goes into a weird state and they can't control it, you know. They can't really have the mindfulness to keep track to what's going on in their mind. They start seeing things that do not exist, they start, and then a lot of fear can come up. We have had quite a few of those around, had to deal with people like that. We have to be very careful. We don't. That's why we don't ordain. We're quite on the non-side, but I think the monk-side also. But the non-side, we really don't ordain people who are not ready at some level. They don't have to be perfect, but they have to have give us a sense that they can handle you know, themselves just in a normal, natural way, the day, normal daily routine, with a sleep that's less than the normal that they are used to, with um, you know eating less, speaking less, it's a whole new it's a whole world here, the, of practice. You know, it's a really unusual world, but if people can adapt to that, you know, without feeling too disconnected, then maybe they are you know capable of following the path. You know, in a monastic environment, but not everybody can. Well, it's after 10, so I will let you go on the walking meditation now. Yeah? I hadn't planned this, you know, but sometimes it's easier for everybody not to have too many ideas of what should be happening. Sometimes it's good to know what should be happening. So now, walking meditation is good to happen until about uh, 11 o'clock, and from 11 to 11.30, you can just have a little break.
You can continue your walking meditation. You can go back here and sit quietly. If I, if I would advise you to continue the, the sustaining, the kind of intensity of your meditation practice, you know, until you leave, rather than, um, you know, letting it sort of disperse. And But at some point, I may give you one hour to speak with each other. <laughs> Maybe dangerous. Sometimes after, not all the time, but in the early days, sometimes we used to have that as a norm, the people just to talk a little bit before they go back on the M25, you know? Other than, oh my God, you know, am I in Scotland? (laughs) (laughs) Is is this a truck? No, I'm not sure. (laughs) Anyway, so you can readapt a little bit, you know? You know, in some places they do retreat for three months. I remember they used to call the local, the local Trappist monk, you know, to kind of help them out. At IMS, you know IMS, Insight Meditation Society in, near Boston. Yeah, they used to you know, call upon the Trappist monk and other friends of theirs, sort of to help the retreatant to readjust to normal life, <laughs> as if the Trappist monk <laughs> are going to. I mean, like, some of them are really good friends, you know, so I can't, you know, criticize them. But they're very human, that's the thing, you know. So being very human and, and having a good sense of humor probably was very helpful for them to <laughs> to help the meditator who'd been like really serious and sort of on the way to Nibbana, you know, on the fast lane. <laughs> <laughs> so tomorrow probably I shouldn't tell you that because you're going to start thinking about it. <laughs> That's the trouble. Maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen. So I know that you're going to, you can drop it.